there is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This is Miss Liz Powell. She's a professional dancer. She's in the hospital as a result of overwork and nervous fatigue. And at this moment, we have just finished walking with her in a nightmare. In a moment, she'll wake up and will remain at her side. The problem here is that both Miss Powell and you will reach a point where it might be difficult to decide which is reality and which is nightmare. A problem uncommon, perhaps, but rather peculiar to the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and today, joined once again by my co-host... 80Z. I'm glad to be here. Coming to you from the northern layer, which just happens to be... Guess how many miles away from the southern post? Room for one more, honey. <laughs> yes, that's right. 22 miles from the southern post. How about that, Jimbo? Yeah, I'm glad we're not recording together uh, in the southern layer today. <laughs> it wouldn't have been as good yeah. of a joke. <laughs> right, it wouldn't have been as good. Exactly 22. So let's look at this episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, it's entitled 22. It's the Twilight Zone season number two. It's episode number 17. Don't you wish they would have waited? Don't you wish they would have waited till episode 22 of the second season to release this? The what? Why, why didn't they just wait till episode 22 of the second season? Right. You're a little little slow. What? You're a little slow slow today. Or afternoon. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It took me a second to get that. Yeah, that that would have made probably a lot more sense. But this is uh, episode 17. It's directed by Jack Smite. And the teleplay is uh, by Rod Serling. And it's based on, I think, Jimbo, you got some stuff about this later. It's yeah. an anti- It's based on the story of an anecdote from a famous ghost story by Bennett Cerf. Would you like and me to go ahead and insert that? that here? Sure, sure. Go right ahead. All right, brother. So Rod Serling adapted 22 from a short antidote in famous ghost stories edited by Bennett Cerf. What a last name, Cerf, uh, from Random House, 1944. In the original, an attractive young New York girl visits the Carolina plantation of some distant relatives. On two successive nights, just as she is getting into bed, she looks out the window to see a magnificent old coach drawn by four black or coal-black horses pull up outside. The coachman... A ghastly-looking fellow jumps off the coach, points a finger at her, and says, There is room for one more. This so unnerves the girl that she packs her bags and heads back to New York, where she goes to see a doctor. The doctor dismisses the entire thing as a hallucination, but just as she is about to board the elevator to return to the ground floor of the medical building, she hears a familiar voice saying, There is room for one more. The elevator operator is the same man as the coachman. The girl screams and draws back. The cables on the elevator break, and all the passengers plummet to their deaths. 
And that is from the great book, The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zickery, uh, which is one of my favorite Twilight Zone books. Back to you, Eric. All right. So um, this original air date was on February the 10th, 1961, which leads us to our famous and beloved segment, On This Day in History. All right. So on this day in TV and film history... 1939, Stagecoach, the Western film directed by John Ford, starring Claire Trevor and John Wayne, premieres in Miami. And this actually happens to be covered by the Tragedy of Cinema podcast in episode number 64. So, Stagecoach in 1939. 1940, Tom and Jerry, a cartoon created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, had its debut on MGM on this day. And then finally, in 1993, and I remember this pretty well, Michael Jackson talks to Oprah Winfrey, and it airs on ABC. And I'll get this, it drew an astounding 39.3 rating, or a 56 share, uh, which equates to about 90 million people actually viewed that interview between Michael Jackson and Oprah Winfrey. Did you ever see it, Jimbo? I'm sure I did, but I try to forget things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a megastar, and certainly at that time, I think that was prior to all the controversies surrounding that. We won't unpack all that, but 90 million people, and I went back and looked in 1993, but there was about, uh, according to the U.S. Census, I think there were about 250 million people in the country, so 90 million, that's a huge number. Uh, You know, that's uh, over 35%, I think, of the country actually viewed that um, actual interview. So there you go. There's your... This day in history from TV and film. Uh, production costs for our Twilight Zone episode. We're looking at $53,824.64. So about mid-range for a Twilight Zone episode. Kind of high considering that this was a videotaped ep- episode though. When we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at $526,824 dollars and 42 cents with an 878% increase. So moving along, Jimbo, why don't you handle that cast for us? Sure. Um, there's, I guess it's a relatively small cast, but there's uh, basically probably only four main actors or actresses in this. Uh, and those are the ones that I took time a little bit on. So the first is Barbara Nichols, uh, who is the leading lady, if you will. She plays Liz Powell. Um, she was in the movie Sweet Smell of Success in 1957, and she was also in Batman 66. I believe it's episode 35 and 36, or 36 and 37. I couldn't find out who she played, so I didn't have time to go to my voodoo and check. Uh, but yeah, she's in that. She's been in several other things as well. Uh, then you have Jonathan Harris, uh, the doctor. Um, he is probably most famous for his uh, appearance in Lost in Space in 1965, where he was Dr. Smith. Uh, so he's like the face of that franchise. Uh, you had Fred Wayne playing Barney Kaminer. Man, this guy. When you watch the episode, dude, he's just, what a slime ball. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he was in Man on the Moon in 1999. And I do believe that is um, a Reese Witherspoon movie uh, for back in the day when she was a real young girl in there. And he was also in a... Um, a more perfect union, uh, America becomes a nation where he portrayed Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I thought that was very, very cool. Then you had Arlene Martell. She was the nurse in the morgue as Arlene Sachs. Uh, she played in the original Star Trek in 1966. You had Mary Adams, who was the day nurse. 
she was in the movie Executive Suite in 1954. You had Norma Connolly, who was the night nurse. She was in The Wrong Man in 1956. You had Wesley Lau, who was the airline agent. Um, he's been in uh, a couple other Twilight Zones as well. Uh, you had Angus Duncan, who was the ticket clerk. Uh, he was in Injustice for All in 1979. You had Carol Kahn, who was the <laughs> uncredited as the sax double. Uh, she was in Days of Our Lives uh, in 1965. And a couple more. You had Joseph Sargent, who was a ticket clerk that was uncredited, who was in Jaws the Revenge in 1987. And, of course, legendary Rod Serling himself as the narrator and the host, uh, who's uncredited once again, but obviously he appears in there. And one thing before I kick it back to you, Eric, um, one thing I will say about Rod Serling's intro into this, even though he is in the basement of a morgue, the echo that his voice is doing in this, it just didn't sound right. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but that's that was my first uh, take of coming into the episode. Yeah, do you think that was on purpose? Like because he was in the basement, maybe they added that audio then. Maybe? I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe um, since it is the video taped, uh, maybe it had the echoing oh, from where they were at in the basement instead of the normal. Yeah, you know. So that's that's just what yeah, I, I think. So. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I just that's what I wondered if if they added it for like ambiance or effect, if they added it back in or something. But yeah, I did notice that myself. Um, moving along to, uh, I got a small biography here of our leading lady, um, Barbara Nichols, who was Miss Miss Powell in this episode. She was born on December the tenth, nineteen twenty eight, in Manola, Long Island, New York City. Uh, she died on October fifth, nineteen seventy six. Actually, died fairly young. She died of a, a liver ailment. Um, her nicknames include the Queen of B Movies, the Blonde Bombshell, Miss Long Island. And let me tell you, she, she earned her name, as you'll come to discover as I read a little bit about her life. She attended and graduated from Woodrow Wilson Vocational High School in Jamaica, New York. She uh, was a beauty contestant, a winner of a, many beauty contests. Um, she was crowned Miss Long Island, <laughs> Miss Dill Pickle, <laughs> Miss Mink of 1950. I don't know what Miss Dill Pickle was, but uh, that's interesting. And uh, Miss Wielder or Welder of 1953. She was considered a minor rival to Marilyn Monroe. I've heard that stated before that she was the Marilyn Monroe of the small screen, if you will. Uh, so she was uh, a rival to Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, and, you know, a list of other uh, great actresses of the day. Uh, she kind of fit that mold uh, in, in that time frame in the 1950s. In the late 1940s, she was a showgirl at the New York City's famed Latin Quarter nightclub. Actually, uh, she was in a serious automobile accident in Long Island in 1957 that damaged her spleen and another serious automobile accident in Southern California in the 1960s that damaged her liver, excuse me, her liver, which is, you know, the result of what uh, ultimately would uh, take her life later. I think that a lot of it is attributed to, to those two automobile accidents and why she was in such poor health. So in the summer of 1976, she was rushed to Cedar Sinai's Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles, California, where she went into a coma. She awoke for several days just before Labor Day, but sank back uh, into a coma shortly thereafter. She passed away on October 5th, 1976, two months away from what would have been her 48th birthday on December the 10th. 
Uh, she also was a calendar girl. Uh, she was a cover girl for at least 50 magazines. She was a nightclub dancer. In 1956, she played the role of a stripper in Miracle in the Rain. I haven't seen that movie. Uh, she was on the television series The Mask, where she played a murdered stripper. Uh, on Studio One, she was called, or she was a dumb blonde. Um, let me, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble reading this. Uh, on on the Danger, uh, she was a nightclub singer. On the Circle Theater, Ponds Theater, the U.S. Steel Hour, she was cast to portray a succession of sweater girls, hat check girls, chorus girls, and movie starlets. And this episode of The Twilight Zone kept her track record going because she plays a exotic dancer in this episode. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have about her biography. So, she, again, she kind of fit the mold of that uh, mid-50s, um, early 60s blonde bombshell kind of thing. And she uh, she actually parlayed her herself as a beauty contestant apparently and winning all those uh you know contests and got herself some roles on television so and and in movies so that's just a little bit about her life uh unfortunately she passed uh, pretty young with again those those liver issues uh, as a result of um those two car accidents so let me move on to the plot for this twilight zone episode let me just jump in here with that. Liz Powell, an exotic dancer, is suffering from exhaustion and is being treated at a hospital prior to a scheduled engagement in Miami. She has a reoccurring nightmare, which she takes the elevator down to the morgue and is invited by an ominous-sounding nurse who tells her, Room for one more, honey. Her doctor assures her there's nothing wrong with her physically and she's just overworked and tired. To Liz, the nightmare is very real. The doctor suggests that she try to break the pattern to see if she can get them to stop. The next time she has the dream, she travels down to the moor, but the dream goes off as before. With her medical issues taken care of and her Miami engagement a day away, it's time for Liz to leave. But it's, is her nightmare over? Dun, dun, dun. That's the question. Is her nightmare over? And uh, we'll get to that. That's sort of the big twist. Well, it's not really a... I don't know, Jimbo. What did you think? Could you see the twist in this episode coming from a mile away, or was it... Uh, no, not really. Um, I think it was, I think it was a really good ending. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but, we'll, but, but we'll get there. I do have a, a couple things as we, we, we go into the opening of this. Um, obviously, we see her start having this where she wakes up and she drops the glass next to the bed. And she ends up going, wandering down the hallway, takes the elevator, goes down to like the garage basement area, and it says room 22, and that's where you first encounter the uh, the night nurse. Well, we'll call her the night nurse, um, the lady in the basement, if you will, and that says, uh, room for one more, honey. But I notice several things right away, and I don't know if you caught this. Uh, for one, for me, is her gown. Her gown in this episode is a dress. I mean, there's no other way about it. We've all been in the hospital. You know, you go. You, they always make you put in one of those those gowns that doesn't tie around in the backside, so your butt's sticking out or your your underwear. You know what I mean? And and it's the ones that never fit right. And here she is. It looks like she's basically about to go perform on stage, which. I understand if she's in there for overexhaustion. Maybe they brought her straight in from the the nightclub, or uh, she was stripping, or whatever. But 
I just, that, that just didn't set right with me to begin. So um, I thought, mm, is she? Is this just all in her mind because she's still glamoured up, uh, for one. Um, and the other thing that struck me as weird as, as, as you go along, even at the opening scene, is the stuffed animals. Like she has a tiger when she she wakes up or whatever next to her bed. That's when she drops a yeah. glass. And then she's sitting there. What is it? Is it a, is it a clown? A doll clown in her lap? Oh, I, I'd have to go back. I didn't notice. I noticed the tiger. I yeah. think that's yeah. Uh, I think I, I think it's the, the I think the clown uh, is when she's sitting there and her her uh, boss agent comes in. I think and it's in her lap, or it's when the doctor comes okay. in. And it's in her lap, and and I'm like, um, she's basically like a, a child trapped in a woman's body. And I think it might be due to the fact that maybe mm-hmm. she has some insecurities growing up, and like her agents like pushing her for do things where she never. She, she kind of reminds me if, if if you think about it. Now I might be stretching it here, but um, we all remember <laughs> jo- John Benet Ramsey. Uh, you know how how uh, parents like that, where they would put their childs in like pageants from an early age and all that. You know what I mean? Where basically they never had time to grow up as a as a child, and that's what I kind of think this lady is. I, I maybe I'm reading into it too far, but I don't think that she really got to grow up in in the in the right way because you could still see insecurities in her life. So that's just my beginning observations, Eric. I'll kick it back to you, but yeah. that was on my that was on my mind as I was watching it. Okay, I got some funny trivia about the nightgown that you mentioned. The nightgown Nichols wore in the episode caused one of a few retakes. Apparently, it was not an ordinary nightgown by any means. It was a lacy job with a peekaboo front. Well, anyhow, there was too much peekaboo or too little, she recalled. So this is Barbara Nichols telling the story. We just uh, call so that a boo. Had to redo it. And she said this was just about the only laugh the camera and crew had the whole show was you know it surrounded her uh, nightgown that you mentioned before a, l- a little too much or a little too little I guess so yeah I don't know I noticed the stuffed animals too um, the outline that I kind of made for the for this I kind of broke I counted seven scenes or let's see six yeah seven there may be more there may be less and Jimbo you you started us out great with the the first uh, scene being the the opening in the hospital room and then uh you know she's first she hears she's at the bedside she hears footsteps walking down the hall she gets on the elevator she goes to the basement and then she makes it to room 22 which is you know the morgue and then she meets the night nurse now they did they run through this series i think twice in the episode for once at the beginning and then once at the end with a little bit of deviation um and then we had Jimbo. You mentioned that earlier. Rod's narration in the basement. I thought that was cool how they went to him, you know, in the basement after the whole nightmare scene that she has. And then he asks the question: Is it nightmare or is it reality? He asks that in the in the beginning monologue. So let me ask you, Jimbo: Have you ever had a dream or a nightmare that seemed so real that it was hard to distinguish? Absolutely. I can tell you the yeah. first nightmare. I can tell you the first nightmare I ever had. Okay, yeah, for this? give me some story. Oh, yeah. So when I was, man, I, I probably couldn't have been more than three or four. And, and it's the first nightmare I ever remember having. And um, I'm on a plane, and um, the 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 uh, stewardess is actually Maleficent from the Disney cartoon. <laughs> what was it? Uh, Sleeping Beauty? When she was like mm-hmm. the evil queen or whatever. And I just remember that, dude. I was so scared that that was real. Uh, as a three- or four-year-old kid, man, that, that just sh- shakes you. You know what I mean? And right. then, you know, um, you've always had those ones where you think you're falling. You know, uh, you know you're going to crash or whatever. But what about you, 80s? 80s, you ever had a nightmare? It's interesting that you a had a Disney. One? 
you had a Disney reoccurring nightmare. Let me give you my story. All right. So when I was like three or four, I can't remember exactly, but my grandmother had made a, she took a ceramics class and she made this ceramic image of Dumbo and it sat on my dresser. Okay. So my reoccurring nightmare was, I, I, I can remember this vividly. It would happen over and over and over. Um, all through my younger childhood it probably stopped when i was maybe like six i can't exactly remember but in the dream i'm riding on dumbo and we're under the circus tent top right <laughs> and you talk mine incorporates the falling okay i'm riding on dumbo i'm holding on to his ear and then all of a sudden i fall off and i'm falling 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 i'm about to hit the ground of this three ring circus and we're under the tent you know and then i i wake up instantly i wake up before i hit the ground and I'll get to, I got some more questions about dreams and recurring dreams and stuff that I'll ask at the end. But that, that was my, that's, that's do, weird that do both you, of ours revolved around Disney characters. Do you still have the Dumbo statue? Uh, if no, so, I, we will want to see a picture of that on the Tragedy of Cinema <laughs> podcast group on Facebook. I don't think I do. My mom might still have it, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think I do. That's well, that's your mission. though. <laughs> Yeah, that's your mission. I had another. I had another reoccurring dream for years about I was getting attacked by a wolverine. I don't know why. I don't. I've never even seen a wolverine in real life, other than the Michigan wolverines. And like, I would be trapped up against my fence in my backyard of my old house that I grew up in, and this thing would be like chewing on my leg. And I, I seriously, I had it like almost. Once a week. Now, that was later on, like, when I was, like, a teenager. I had this reoccurring dream that I was getting attacked by a wolverine. Anyway, moving along. Uh, Miss Powell here in this episode, she's having this reoccurring dream that she hears the footsteps walking down the hall. She gets on the elevator. She goes to the basement, goes to room 22. Rod's narration here. We, we already discussed that. Um, then in scene three, we're back in the hospital. And Mrs. Powell, uh, she gets a visit from her slimy agent, as Jimbo described him, and his name is Barney. I don't know if his last name's ever given, but yeah, so Barney's agent. Yeah, Kamenier. What's that? Mm, K a m e n e r. Yeah, yeah. So Barney comes to see her. It seems like after an extended period of time, like he doesn't come see her right away because she's a little bit mad at him, you know, like. What took you so long to get here, Barney? And like, you know, I thought you wrote me off. I thought, you know, blah, blah, blah. She She's a little bit perturbed at Barney. And he shows her a picture that he's made of her and her, uh, I don't know if it's in the club or, she, or in her outfit or uh, exotic dancer's outfit. And he gives it to her sort of as a gift. Now, as creepy as Barney is, Jimbo, what did you think about the doctor? Man, he is really weird, yeah. dude. It really yeah. weird. I mean, that's when I thought, man, something's going on with this guy. But but he says something like really offbeat or something at the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. And I'm like, he does. what did he just he say? <laughs> he, he, he gives an off-color joke. He's like, oh, what I wouldn't give to be a young intern to be, you know, helping you out or something like that. Right. He just rubs Mrs. Powell miss powell the wrong way but with his off-color remarks and his voice even is really when he asks about okay let's recount the dream he he just has a really creepy scumbaggy type feel to him like 
So that that was played really well. That's a credit to the actor, you know, playing that part that well. Uh, even his vo- his laugh is kind of unsettling. It's just he just yeah, he's really weird. Um, so Miss Powell recounts to the doctor that this particular dream has happened six nights in a row now that's one thing i guess i could ask you jimbo when you had your recurring dream was it night after night after night or would you like skip no it would just happen periodically right yeah so i've never had one that's happened night after night after night like like her um but yeah mine kind of skipped around a little bit as well so here's a quote from miss powell you know after their you know barney and the doctor asking you know they're trying to determine what's going on with her and she's like, we're just, we're just a little tired of you 10 people an hour walking around my bed. And, uh, like there were some kind of freak or something. Why don't you guys get off the dime? There's nothing wrong with me. I never heard that expression, get off the dime. I assumed that it had to do with, you know, milking her for her money by keeping her in the hospital. Like, but apparently this expression is from the 1920s in dance halls and it has to do uh, with prompting the dancers to get off stage or whatever and to get moving. I never knew that. That was a, a phrase from a, well, apparently it's from the 1920s. And I was wrong. I thought it had to do with the, you know, the hospital charging you so much money, you know, like, hey, get off the dime and get me out of here. Well, I thought it had to do with a telephone call, you know, like a dime oh. you put in there and, and yeah. Like okay. basically get off the phone because there's other people that need to uh, use it. So basically you're in this hospital bed when somebody else could really use it is the way I took it. So I was wrong okay. too, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I looked it up. I guess this expression is it comes from dance hall. So that kind of correlates with her job, like being a dancer. That's why she would come up with that phrase. Uh, those little things are kind of interesting to me. Um, so one suggestion that the doctor makes is that with the reoccurring dream that she changed the chronology, you know, cause he goes through the chronology of how all the events happen. He's like, well, maybe you can kind of like short circuit the dream. If you rearrange some of the items and how they happen. Um, so in the second adaptation, the replay of the dream, what is it? Jimbo? She's like, he tells her, don't break the glass. Don't get a drink of water. Yeah, don't break the glass. It. Exactly. But, when she goes to the dream, she gets up and she's not trying to get the glass, but she ends up knocking the glass over anyway and breaking it. Yeah, she, she reaches like for something across a cigarette. It, right? Yeah, she was smoking a cigarette, and then she went to put the lighter on the night table, and the night table, excuse me, the lighter fell on the floor, and then she ends up knocking the glass over that way. So then that reinserts the whole cycle again, and the ticking of the alarm clock, and then everything starts happening again. So it didn't work. So. We basically have a replay of the opening of the episode. The dream is pretty much the same with a little bit of deviation, maybe. Um, and then we have the scene after that, uh, scene number four, or excuse me, the scene five where the doctor and the nurse, there's a kind of a little caveat where they're standing in the hallway. And then this is kind of maybe the crux of the episode where the doctor asks the nurse, well, like, how would she know the number of the morgue, where, where the morgue is in the basement when she's never been out of the room? Mm-hmm. You know, they, they kind of leave you with all those questions. Like, how would she know all the details of that in her dream if she's never been out in the, in the, hall, in the halls or anywhere in the hospital? Well, I think, uh, I think an important part that you missed, too, is when she uh, – maybe it hasn't happened yet, but when he's like, you keep telling me that you keep going down to the morgue and the night nurse is down there, and he's like – 
we don't have that night nurse and they move that curtain and it's it kind of looks like the lady but it's not the lady you can tell the the features are different so i i think that was very interesting too so that lady basically doesn't even work there that she keeps seeing. right right the, the, and the, yeah he makes that point like how could you see this lady when it's not the same lady that works here um so after the doctor and the nurse have that exchange in the hallway you know, and they're puzzled how Mrs. Powell, Ms. Powell could know where the morgue is. Then we're back in the hospital room, and uh, Miss Powell is leaving the hospital now. She's being released. She's headed to Miami, and that's kind of scene number six. And then scene seven is all set at the airport, um, and the ticket agent reveals that her flight is actually number 22, flight number mm-hmm. 22. She hears the ticking of the clock on the wall. She bumps into a lady carrying a, like a ceramic vase or a lamp. I can't really tell which. And then the lamp hits the ground, the, less the breaking of the glass. Uh, she hears footsteps behind her as people pass by her, you know, to go out to the tarmac. Uh, she walks up the tarmac and up the stairs, and she hears those dreaded words from the flight attendant, who is the nurse, who is now a flight attendant for this particular flight. She runs back hysterically and looks out the window to see Flight 22 burst into flames by a huge explosion. And that kind of brings you to the end of the episode. Um, Jimbo, do you have any, did you have anything else inside the episode, like trivia wise? Uh, no, no, I did not. Okay, okay I'm going to, I'll launch on to just some general trivia about the episode then. So Barbara Nichols accidentally fell when she was running down the airplane stairs and back to the runway. Although Barbara's fall on the tarmac wasn't in the script, Jack Smite loved it so much that he kept the shot in. So that was uh, that was kind of interesting that in the original script she wasn't supposed to fall and they left it in. Arlene Martell credited here as Arlene Sachs. Which that's kind of confusing. I don't... Was there a double for her, too? Or Jimbo, you read in the cast list that there was a lady named Carol Kahn who was Sax's double? Yeah, I, Sax's I, I didn't understand that. So maybe there was two ladies? I don't know. That That's kind of weird. But anyway, or, or is, Martell. Or was she the lady where she pulled the curtain back and it was the fake nurse? Maybe. I don't know. But I think that would be Norma Conley, though. Yeah. Um, so Arlene Martell... Let's get back to her. She plays the nurse in the morgue who taunts Liz Powell with the line, room for one more, honey. In order to make her look more sinister, they used makeup to give her a somewhat demonic look, complete with arched eyebrows. She would uh, later land her famous role, that of T. Pring, the woman who is betrothed to Spock in the Star Trek movie Amok, Amok Time, 1967. Have you seen that before, Jimbo? Uh, yes, a long time ago. Really? So it's an actual, it's a Star Trek movie and not an episode, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so the interesting thing uh, is that a picture of her as the nurse in 22 is almost identical to her appearance in that particular Star Trek movie. Although that was kind of interesting. And this is the fourth of six episodes to be videotaped. We've talked about that uh, at many points in the podcast. Although I will, I will say this right here. Tell me what you think, Jimbo. I didn't think it was this, that noticeable in this one. For whatever reason, it might have just been the... Until the very end and the explosion of the airplane, that was really noticeable. But I don't know. Maybe it was the setting or how it was shot or the lighting. I don't know. It just didn't... 
or maybe it was the device I watched it on the first time, but I didn't notice it to be a videotaped episode like the other ones seemed really noticeable. It, yeah, it, did, it didn't. It didn't stand out as bad as the other ones. Um, again, I think it would have looked better if it would have been st- uh, shot studio like the other ones. Yeah, uh, I think sure. it would have flowed a lot better. But yeah, it's not as bad as some of them. Yeah. So. As Jimbo referenced earlier, the story was adapted by Rod Serling from a short anecdote in 1944 by Bennett Cerf of Random House Anthology, Famous Ghost Stories, which it itself is an adaptation of The Bus Conductor, a short story by E.F. Benson. So apparently the the Cerf story was taken from another short story, and I started to read The Bus Conductor. It's a little short story, and I, I don't know, I got about halfway through Um I couldn't really pick up on a lot of the connections, but I'll get to that as to why. If you read The Bus Conductor on its own, it's not going to be like a shot-for-shot remake of this episode. So, The Bus Conductor was from an anthology... Oh, I'm sorry. The Bus Conductor is an, uh, was an inspiration for one of the segments in an anthology horror film called Dead of Night in 1945. So, this story has kind of been retreaded a couple of times, but... Let me in this particular episode of the Twilight Zone. This episode originated from a gracious gesture to Serling from a friend, Bennett Cerf. So apparently, Bennett Cerf and Serling were good friends. He was the president of Random House Inc. at the time. So Cerf spent the afternoon and evening as a guest of the Serlings at their Pacific Palisades home. As a way of saying thanks, Cerf arranged for the New Beginner books and the latest Dr. Seuss release to be shipped to the Serlings in mid-December 1959. How cool would that to be, to be one of Serlings' <laughs> kids and get one of the first Dr. Seuss, you know, early prints or whatever? Probably so anyway, autographed. Said, yeah, all right. So he sent this over to the Serlings in 1959. Among the books was an anthology of ghost stories for Rod, and it was one of the short stories contained within that as half of the inspiration for the episode. So the other half of the inspiration originated from Mrs. Peter D. Matthews of Needham, Massachusetts. She wrote to Serling on July 26th, forwarding two clippings from the July 25th issue of the Boston Sunday Herald. The news briefs told of a construction worker who days before a deadly accident shook hands with his fellow workers and told him, told them he would be dead before Wednesday. That's kind of wild. Sure enough, a 120-foot crank, uh, excuse, uh, sure enough, a 120-foot crane, excuse me, smashed down on him on Decatur Street in East Boston, killing three men, including the men who, the man who predicted his own death. The premise was too intriguing in detail, so Serling blended the ghost story and the news items into a fictional tale of a woman who suffers from a reoccurring nightmare foretelling a future accident uh, that just may be the cause of her own death. So that's interesting how those two <laughs> things got meshed together. Um, the guy with the crane and uh, the uh, book of ghost stories. So after viewing the finished film, actress Barbara Nichols admitted that she was a bit... Uh, she was a bit scared for a spell. I told Serling, I'm always the comedian, she said. I told him I'd always wanted to be or in doing dramatic roles. So she wrote, so he wrote the show for me. I'm happy as a clam because this episode was taped. Barbara Nichols was able to view the scene minutes later on the tape playback. That was when I scared myself, she said. 
There I was in the bed in the hospital nightgown, screaming my head off. I had to scream real loud, so I just screamed. I'm not a method actor. I didn't practice. I guess a method actor would have gone off into the corner to cogitate or maybe run around the building a few times. But me, I just screamed. So, uh, and then the last bit of trivia here that I think I have, uh, well, two points. The airplane explosion was uh, replicated by filling a model airplane with explosives and running it down a guide wire. And then the line, room for one more honey, uh, as far as I can count, was used five times in the episode. Twice by the nurse, once by the doctor, once by Miss Powell herself, and then finally by the stewardess. Jimbo? Anything? Still nothing? <laughs> yeah, I got Well, one thing is uh, that airplane taking off, it reminds me of like my, uh, I think it was my seventh grade science fair project that we had to do. We had, had an airplane come down right. on a wire. It crashed to burn, too. I don't think I did very well on that, <laughs> uh, that, that, that one either. Um, yeah. But one thing I want to point out is uh, two things. One, if you watch the ending when the lady, uh, the stewardess, uh, says room for one more honey she kind of looks and gives a smirk so did she know you know what i mean did she know it wasn't just like right. oh we're running her off you know what i mean I, I think that was very interesting but here i propose a question to you eric did you happen to notice any similarities as to another episode that we've covered in perchance to dream there was the devil lady the cat lady and the dancer who kind of reminded me of this uh, this this evil nurse, if you will? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, is it is it sloppy repackaging to basically tell the same story again and come out with a just change a few things and be a different episode? Uh, or did you happen to even notice any of the similarities between this and Perchance to Dream? You know, it's been a while since we covered that one. I'd have to go back and watch it again. Uh, I did notice uh, some similarities. Um, I guess the outcomes are different. I, that would be the main difference that I would see, right? Because he thrust himself out the window and committed right. suicide at the end to where, I don't know. His is more, I, was his diagnosis kind of the same? Because he was in a, like a psychiatrist's office. Yeah, that'd be interesting to go back and unpack sort of a lot of the parallels. Especially, well, I'm just, uh, to me, it was more about the, the, the secretary and also the, 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 the devil lady that was in his dreams right. that he kept having right. nightmares about. Remember, every time right. he would dream, he would be about that same lady over and over. And then he goes outside, and it's her sitting at that uh, desk, and he jumps yeah. out the window. But when you go back, it's not right. her. It's it's the other lady, the real secretary. So that's where I, I kind of drew some conclusions between that and this. Um, maybe I'm off, but I, I no, still no, think no, you I can see, see some of the similarities. Yeah. yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, that's interesting how those things sort of parallel. One one thing I left off was one of the goofs in the very beginning scene, the very first adaptation of the dream. When Liz first faces the elevator, a profile shot of her hand is by her side of her face. You know, she kind of rubs the side of her face when she's kind of scared and she's cold and she's walking down the the hallway. But then the camera. Uh, shoots a front view of her very shortly thereafter and her hand is moved down at her side so that's just a little just a little cinemagraphic uh, goof that you know when they well maybe she had to maybe she had to get the peekaboos back in order (laughs) (laughs) possibly you gotta make sure those are in check so uh, questions and observations um i already talked about that uh, earlier that this really wasn't as noticeable of a videotaped episode i guess 
And one possible explanation is that a chunk of the episode is conveyed to be a dream sequence, so maybe that's excusing the inferior product of the videotape. Maybe, I don't know. I, I just really didn't notice it until the airplane explosion scene. And then, Jimbo, we talked about our reoccurring dreams. Uh, and then I wanted to ask you this question. Do you remember, like, when we were kids, the urban legend about, like, if you had a dream and you're falling in your dream and you if you, you hit the die. ground, you died in real life? I tried to search the internet to see where that came from, and I really didn't do too much of a deep dive, but I know I'd always heard that as a kid. Like, if you hit the ground... From you basically die of a heart attack, I, I think is what yeah. I heard. And that Yeah, and that's kind of what I came to the conclusion of, uh, from reading on the internet or whatever, you know, all these internet doctors or whatever. Um, they basically said, yeah, well, if you had like a heart condition or something and that happened to you, yeah, it's possible that... It could, you could die. You could have a coronary and, and die in real life if that if that happened. If you had that much stress on your heart or whatever. Um, let's see. What other observation did I have? Um, have you? Ever, uh, that was my question to you. Um, have you ever died in a dream before? Okay, uh, story time. Lay um, on us. This don't is what the laugh. people want to hear. Don't laugh. Uh, there's don't only a few laugh. people that I've ever told this story to. My wife was one of them. Okay. And and she's told people because she thinks it's funny. I think it was heroic, <laughs> but here we go. Picture this. New York City. <laughs> Me and my wife are out in New York City, right? Uh, see the Statue of Liberty, you know, and all that. And we, we start walking down this dark dark alley like, um, I don't know, if you've ever seen Batman where, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents get right. killed where they walk down with the smoke right. and the, the nighttime and, and all that. And, and this guy comes up and pulls out a gun. And... Uh, he said, give me give me all your money. And I'm like, dude, I said, we ain't got no money. You know, you're picking all the wrong people. I said, we ain't got no money. He said, well, you don't give me money. I'm going to shoot her. Well, when he goes and squeezes a chigger, I, I jump in front of my wife, right? Oh. And as I jumped in front of her, I get shot, but I flew out of the bed <laughs> in real life and landed <laughs> on like one of her high heels or shoes right in the sun. Oh. And I'm going, oh. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm saving your life. <laughs> So I count that as kind of – you weren't supposed to laugh, Barry, uh, but I say I probably died oh, in that one. Um, but that's the only one that really stands out uh, mostly to me. You? Nice. Nice. No, I'm not the hero like you in my dreams. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot. Make me look like the idiot of the podcast. No, that's that's crazy that even the, the high heel or whatever – Yeah, it hit me you right. Know, the, like you in the side. And, yeah, I yeah, thought I bruised my ribs crazy. or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I don't think I've, I've, you know, it's always the following uh, dreams. I've fallen off buildings, uh, you know, Superman's dropped me, like, in the original <laughs> Superman, like how you, or maybe it's two, where he drops Lois Lane, like, I had a lot of Superman fantasy dreams that, you know, I would be falling, but never, I never hit the ground for whatever reason, so. Did you ever uh, have the dream that good, you could fly? Oh, tons. Dude, like, I love it, yeah. dude, I'd be soaring above the treetops, you know, just... You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that that like, reoccurring one about Dumbo, that one scared me to death. And the you know, being mauled by the uh, the Wolverine, those those are the two ones that stick out in my mind. But uh, yeah, I don't other if you don't have any other observations, uh, the, those are just the uh, the two that I had. Anything else in closing from you? Uh, well, one thing. Um as we're closing this episode down, uh, let's keep um, our good friend Jerry Pauly in your prayers and thoughts. Um, 
He basically uh, went into the hospital where they discovered that he did have a heart attack at some point. He was walking around, uh, but it did damage to his heart. He actually did code on the table as they went in to do a procedure. They brought him back um, after giving him CPR. So he's on this road to recovery. He's home now. Um, he said that he'll be back to normal in no time. But there is a GoFundMe um, if anybody would like to donate to him to help cover some of the medical expenses. Um, he's one of the main reasons I started this podcast because I listened to him. And he even actually uh, – I actually took him out to eat and he answered a lot of questions about what I needed and stuff like that. So uh, that's Jerry Polly with Hillbilly Horror Stories. Um, if you'd like to donate, uh, it's on our uh, Facebook page. It's on their Facebook page. Now, um, as I said that, um, we do have a review I need to read. Uh, okay. And then and then after I give our review, uh, I'll give my thoughts on this episode. So here we go. So this is a new review, and it's awesome show, five stars. It says, Tragedy of Cinema is one of my favorite podcasts. I love the variety of movies and the specials like the Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, five stars. That's from Carl Todd. So, Carl, thanks for listening. Um, he's become yeah, a quick, quickly a good friend of the show. So, yeah, now, definitely. thank you, Carl. Here we go with my rating of this episode. I think that the lady is creepy. The the the, the evil lady, uh, we'll call her um, Barbara Nichols. I wanted to like her, but I just couldn't get into her. Um, and it's not that she did a bad job. It's just, I don't know. She had that, I don't know, that voice that just drives me insane. You know, like the scratchy, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Um, I thought Jonathan Harris, he was the creepy as a doctor. Um, so he did excellent Sc- scumbag, uh, Barney. Um, boy, he played that part really well. He was a scumbag. So, um, for visuals, lighting, um, acting overall, it's probably a six five or a seven for me out of this episode i like the ending i I think it's good um i like i like the twist uh but from everything that i've stated that's probably why i gave it such a low number and then again it it is a videotaped episode and it even though you can't tell it as much in this episode it still bothers me uh that i'm watching it like that especially like when you have a high definition of these uh episodes you can really tell a difference so uh, for me, it's probably a seven, six, five, seven. Eric, what would you give it? Um, yeah, I probably would give it around the same. I think IMDb gave it a. It was a little high for me. I think it might have been as high as eight point seven. I don't. I thought the twist was pretty good at the end. It was a good classic Twilight Zone twist. I like that. Um, I did, of course, don't like the fact that it was videotaped, but again, didn't notice it as much for this one. I thought it was very ominous the the nurse slash stewardess flight attendant she only has one line but she delivered it really really good and yeah i i would say it's probably a strong seven and a half for me with the twist and everything that's involved in the story the way uh rod crafted the story the two stories together i thought that was interesting and it it makes a lot of sense it does have a lot of parallel as jimbo as you brought up earlier with her chance to dream um See, now oh, you really I want to go so. back and watch that now, don't you? Yeah, I think, I, you know, you have a different point of view, a different perspective, you know, now that you have more stuff to add add into it. But, um, yeah, I thought it was fine. I thought it was pretty good. It, it was probably one of the better ones of, of season two, maybe so far. Not the best, but, you know, again, it's just slightly above the middle of the pack tier, I guess, on this uh, episode. So, yeah, I thought it was good. 
It's definitely better than the last videotaped uh, one that we covered, the whole yeah. truth. <laughs> yeah, the, with the used car salesman. Yeah, it's going to be right. really – It's let's not revisit those bad memories. But um, let me just give you a little teaser for, for the next episode. Um, the next episode we'll be covering the Odyssey of Flight 33. So let me just read Rod's trailer. It says, next week you'll find each of your names on the passenger manifest of a jet aircraft that travels from London to New York City. You'll sit in these seats and you'll go through an experience unique beyond words and tense beyond anything I believe you've ever seen. You'll be, you'll be departing next week at about this, this same time in a vehicle we like to call the Odyssey of Flight 33. But be prepared for a stop midway in the Twilight Zone. So there you go. There's your teaser for the next episode. Looking forward to that one. And Jimbo, take it away if you got anything else. Uh, well, if you if you want to follow us on the social media, um, we are the Tragedy Cinema uh, podcast on Facebook. Um, yes, I did start the TikTok since I was sick of waiting on Kyle. Um, you can see I've got a couple of <laughs> posts on there already. Um, pretty cool. Still trying to figure some stuff out, but pretty cool. Uh, let's go ahead and shout out some of our friends for the uh, uh, podcasting world while we're here. Um, there's Mysterious Circumstances with Justin Rimmel. Um, you have Hillbilly Horror Stories with Jerry and Tracy Pauly. Uh, you have uh, Tim Mullins with the uh, HHH Media, uh, where I am one of the audio uh, actors on there. Um, there's also, uh, who else we shown? Uh, Evil Never Dies podcast, if you like, uh, with Brett and Carl, if you like uh, rock and roll, heavy metal, and horror movies. Uh, there's Greg Bazzini with Monsters and the Mosh Pit. I believe, I hope I got that right. And... Um, I know I'm forgetting somebody. Who am I forgetting there? Uh, uh, probably uh, Middle-Aged and Creep Out uh, with Todd, Sean, and Nate, um, who will be alongside us with Hillbilly Horror Stories this May for our live show. So tickets are on sale. They are selling fast, uh, actually faster than last year. So um, last I heard, I think we're almost already past halfway sold out. So uh, you might want to get those soon. So other than that, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And Eric? And cut. Miss Elizabeth Powell, profession dancer. Hospital diagnosis, acute anxiety brought on by overwork and fatigue. Prognosis, with rest and care, she'll probably recover. But the cure to some nightmares is not to be found in known medical journals. You look for it under potions for bad dreams. To be found in the twilight zone. Thank you.